You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Congressman Sam Farr represents the 17th District of California in the United States House of Representatives. He's a member of the House Appropriations Committee, the most senior Democratic member from California serving on the Subcommittee on Agriculture, Rural Development, Food and Drug Administration, and related agencies. Thank you for joining me, Sam. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Sam, let's talk about the economy and the budget. Tell us how things are going with the Recovery Act. Where is the stimulus going, and how is it helping us here in Central California? Well, it's a really great question. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of people unemployed. Floor closures are still going on. It's, uh, there's a lot of despair out there. But I think we also have to recognize that government, uh, when called upon, uh, in fact, almost a year ago today, uh, responded with this Recovery Act, and it has had a dramatic effect. It hasn't solved the problem, but it stopped the downflow. And had it not been for that, uh, there would have been global financial chaos. And America would have been involved in it. And so we essentially made a major decision. And the last act of the Bush administration was to bail out Wall Street. The first act of the Obama administration was to bail out Main Street. And that's what the Recovery Act is. And um, billions of dollars were appropriated. Millions of that billions have uh, filtered down to the three-county Central Coast area for a variety of jobs, and I'm, there's, I mean, the list goes on and on, and I'll, I'll certainly provide you with that. Talk about how, uh, some of the tax cuts, because um, we hear about tax cuts for the wealthy, but there are tax cuts for more than just the wealthy, aren't there? Well, there's two kinds of tax cuts. There's one that, the, uh, that President Bush put in right after uh, he took office. He uh, repealed, uh, and then Congress helped him, Republican Congress helped him, repeal the tax uh, adjustments that uh, President Clinton had put in. By the way, that put us, the federal government, in the black. We had a uh, billions and billions of dollars of surplus uh, under Clinton, and immediately the Republicans repealed uh, those taxes, and they were on the taxes for the most wealthy. But they couldn't pay for them. They couldn't, because the re- a requirement is that if you're going to uh, collect less money, what are you going to do to cut a equivalent amount of programs. Um, and if you don't do that, then you're just bar- you have to borrow money, which is what we've been doing. And so those Bush tax cuts were put in only for 10 years, and they sunset uh, this year. So uh, the House will be coming up with a new tax bill, but essentially it's going to protect uh, the, the, the repeal of taxes for the middle class. And in the Recovery Act, when it was adopted this year, a third of that act uh, was tax cuts for the middle class. It was uh, tax cuts for 95 percent of Americans. And uh, that also combined with increased spending for food assistance, unemployment insurance, uh, subsidies for COBRA, which is the, the, the the insurance, the health insurance program you can get it when you're laid off of work. You can still buy into the group policy, uh, bringing down the cost of that so that unemployed people would still have access to health care. Those all happened uh, with the Stimulus and Jobs Act uh, adopted a year ago, as I said, almost today. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of these specifics. Uh, food assistance, there's a lot of uh, programs out there, entitlement programs, that aren't being used, and uh, California has, has and should be using them. Talk about what those are and how you're helping us to get the money here to the Central Coast. Well, it's very interesting as an elected official, and I've served in local government, state government, and federal government, each one of them has services that are available to you know, the general public. It's, uh, it's amazing how little the general public knows about these programs. I mean, about the only public assistance program people know about is public education. And we call that an entitlement program, meaning if you're a, a school-aged child in the United States, you're entitled to a public education, and nobody can deny that. Uh, school districts really don't know how many kids are going to be in this school until the first day of school. 
And uh, we've seen booms and busts here on the Central Coast as Fort Ord closed. Uh, Monterey Unified School District lost a lot of students. And then several years later, uh, for unknown reasons, there was a huge uh, influx of students, maybe people transferring from private schools and, and uh, homeschooling into the public school system. But that's an entitlement, and no school district can turn away a student saying, I'm sorry, uh, we have too many students in our, in, our, in our school, you can't come. The same thing is if you were poor, if you have low income, even low middle class income, and, or you've been laid off by your job and all of a sudden you're, 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 uh, you've, your income has fallen dramatically, you can be entitled to food assistance. Uh, you can get unemployment insurance. And you can get this uh, COBRA assistance. Uh, this is all the safety net program so that the American uh, public doesn't have to end up uh, begging from door to door. You know, that's when people say, well, if you don't have these social programs, and some people criticize them, well, you shouldn't have them. Let everybody pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Well, I've lived in a country as a Peace Corps volunteer where they didn't have those social programs, didn't have that kind of assistance. And I'll tell you what you have is you have begging, and it's not just begging on the street corner. It's begging on your door every day, people stopping and wanting money for this or that. And uh, that's not the way to run a civilized uh, country. So... I'm very proud of the, the fact that government does provide these assistance, and I do everything I can to make sure people know that they, they are entitled. Um, they're entitled to these programs if they qualify, and um, they should go down and, and ask. Talk about uh, the, for, the foreclosure help that's out there right now. Is, how is that working on the Central Coast? Is it working well? Well, not to my satisfaction. I think that these banks, first of all, foreclosures is all a, a private entity. You borrowed money from a, from a private bank mm -hmm. and a uh, uh, mortgage company. And, uh, you know, in some cases, the people that were trying to get your business uh, made a lot of false statements. And in those cases, they, they committed a crime. And I hope that we can sue the hell out of them. Uh, so people think that they were coerced into this or not told all the facts uh, uh, ought to think about retaining uh, some legal help. And Watsonville has a great uh, legal assistance program for people who are in foreclosure. But the, uh, the federal government is, 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 it, is it in the TARP money uh, lending to big institutions. Not all those monies trickle down to our Main Street banks here. Mm. credit unions and so on. In fact, what, what's happened to them is that they've been squeezed at both ends. First of all, the regulators say that the, you will lent this money on this house for $500,000 house. The house is now worth $250,000. You can't carry it on your books as a, a $500,000 value, and you've now got to come up with a difference, $250,000, mm -hmm. to, to buy out the, 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 the markdown. And... Um, that's really putting a strap on, on banks because where do they get that money? They go to their shareholders and say, we need some more money uh, to, make, to fix our books. Uh, and, and what the problem is that a lot of these banks, people haven't been foreclosed. For example, my house isn't worth probably uh, what my loan is on it, but I'm not worried because someday it's going to come back to that and, and, and we'll come back. So I'm going to keep making my mortgage payments. Uh, some people can't do that. And so if the banks, they really haven't defaulted on the asset. It's just that the books are, are carrying this asset at a higher level. So that's one thing that's hurting banks. And then the other thing is the federal government, and I think rightfully so, said to everybody, you, this is a private insurance. This is, it's a federal assisted insurance to guarantee that your money is safe in a bank. And uh, since banks are defaulting, we're going we're gonna, to uh, have to buy more insurance, and banks are going to have to pay for it. So one end... Uh, they have to come up with the money to uh, this markdown for, for real estate. And on the other end, they have to come up money to pay for more uh, banking insurance. And that has got a bank's cash strap where they can't make loans. And so we're now in the bill that we're in Congress right now, we're going to assist the banks to be able to get more loans into Main Street, uh, not helping the big, huge Wall Street banks, but the Main Street banks. And all this goes to also to the tax cuts that were given to uh, uh, the middle class. I mean, very interestingly, that in all this debate about government taxes and government this and government that, in my own life, my water bill, delivered, my water delivered by a private utility mm -hmm. has gone up. 
Mm-hmm. My garbage bill by a private garbage company has gone up. My lighting bill by PG&E has gone up. Yeah, my, I'll say. My, my bills have gone up mm-hmm. on everything that is private. On the public side, my property taxes have gone down, and because of the tax cut given last year, my income taxes went down. So I don't think the government's to blame for, for all of these costs around here. I think the government is, is trying to be responsive to the asks, and this is what it is, and people petition our government for needs, and we're trying to be responsive to that. And I, I, we've made some mistakes. You know, we can do a better job. We're keep working on it. Uh, remember, when you do this at the federal level, you've got to get the consensus of the entire country. A little bit more difficult than getting a county consensus or a state consensus. But in this tri-county region, I mean, Monterey County has received $113 million in uh, TARP money, I mean, in uh, stimulus money, excuse me, the <laughs> bailout, the, the stimulus money. And uh, San Benito County in excess of $2.7 million, and Santa Cruz uh, County, $61 million. I mean, those, these are monies that would not have been there uh, but for the action of Congress. And there were a lot of, that's $177 million that was poured into this county in the last year to retain jobs. And hopefully, maybe some new jobs, but most cases to retain jobs so that they wouldn't be laid off. Because if there, if it was, we had $177 million less dollars, um, there would be a lot more people unemployed right now. Talk about the jobs bill that's currently in Congress. What is that going to do? And talk about the, just the process of trying to craft that bill. That's, these things cannot be easy. We hear the praise C on the news, and it sounds kind of like a slam dunk. But when you're sitting there with 200-plus other people who all have very different perspectives on this, it's got to be a challenge. Well, the real challenge of this country has always been keeping its infrastructure, which is roads and sewers and water systems and ports and levees and uh, airports and all those things that, that run uh, the economy of the country. And you've got to keep those up. And that's one of America's greatness is that we have really strong funding for infrastructure. It's, so we've, we've always been trying to pay attention to how do we do more to make sure that our infrastructure doesn't fall apart. At the same time, we find that the jobs created in infrastructure uh, are, are blue-collar jobs, and blue-collar folks don't have the luxury of being able to uh, get money and, and then put it in savings account or pay off debt or, or do things like that. Uh, they've got payments to make, so they spend their money. So the, the combination of how do you get money in the hands of people who will put it back into the economy is to get it in the hands of workers who are doing uh, – the the service industry jobs and um, so that's why we're matching up this this jobs bill with infrastructure development so at the end of the day we get the the whole the whole society gets a better uh, country we have a Broadband is almost essential to do business and for kids to learn now, and much of the United States and the rural areas can't get access to broadband. So we've got to, you know, infrastructure, got to build the infrastructure for communication. At the same time, we have all kinds of nifty ways to generate electricity from solar and wind, but the places we generate are out in the boonies. You have to have that area connected to a grid so you can transfer the electricity generated uh, to uh, big communities around the country. Um, so that's, a, that's another way of, of, of job stimulation and, and infrastructure development at the same time, uh, plus all the roads. And so this jobs bill that we're doing is essentially trying to get the bang for the buck, to get people employed, uh, to retain people. For example, Granite Construction has done an awful lot of the work around here, and I think and they're a locally-based corporation, a huge um, uh, construction company, one of the biggest in the United States. And ostensibly a very good place to work, too. And a good place to work and a union shop and all of that, and um, they've had to lay off a lot of people. But it, if they didn't get the contracts to do these road repairs and airport repairs and so on, uh, they would have to lay off a lot more people. So in, in essence, uh, we were able to keep them from, from the bottom from falling out by, uh, and them competing. I remember they had to bid for these jobs. They weren't just, they weren't, there were other companies bidding for them as well. But that's just an example of one company in the, in the area that's gotten a lot of work, not just in this 
Central Coast, but all over the United States because they are uh, doing development in other states as well, including the uh, District of Columbia. Now, you talked about uh, building out broadband. That, I think that's interesting. We're essentially repaving the uh, information superhighway and pushing it out to places where it doesn't exist. But that also um, uh, picks up employment in the, uh, the higher tech industries and, and in the kind of high tech industries that don't just employ people who sit around and invent things, but employ you know the IT workforce, which is uh, rapidly becoming a blue collar workforce. In a sense. Well, it's very essential for America. To, if you want to stay kind of, as a country to, to stay united, then you cannot have the disparity between urban and rural. You can't have the disparity between rich and poor. You, you can't have vast differences. Uh, and, and throughout history, the United States government has always reached out to make sure that uh, the infrastructure of rural America is uh, the people have access to things, and we've we have a you know we've always had a rural housing uh, program. We've had a rural water program. We've had a rural telecommunications pro telephone program. When when because there isn't the economic base for the private sector to make any money if you you have to have run a wire way out somewhere, and there's only two or three people that can uh, use that wire. Nonetheless. Those two or three people, they're going to have kids and family, and if they don't get access to information, they're going to all move into the city. So what happens is you have this migration uh, from rural, uh, and, and frankly, the, the subsistence of America, the ability to eat and the ability to enjoy the outdoors is in the rural America. Mm -hmm. You do want people there. You want them in farming. You want them in uh, doing uh, small business and, and interpretation and economic development in these communities. You don't want to just have our, our, our small towns in America die. So you need to give them the same kind of, uh, 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 of technology. Uh, and sometimes uh, you have to do that with, some, uh, with government help. We usually invest in how do you get the technology there and how do you do it? Remember, the technology is still privately developed, mm -hmm. it's still privately built and, 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 and privately serviced. So uh, it is jobs. It's, and, and this area alone, what we're trying to do is through University of Cal uh, California State University Monterey Bay is to put together a consortium of all of the unmet needs for broadband expansion. And I think it's really smart. It's one stop. So if school districts need it or cities need it or individuals need it or businesses need it, and to know the geography, how do you get this down to uh, South Monterey County to a park field? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you get it up into the mountains of Santa Cruz and to the places that are hard even for satellite technology to get access? And, and obviously the satellite technology for communications is very expensive. So we have a lot of... Uh, a lot of bright people working this uh, on this to bring us together as one community so that we can be really well positioned to be globally connected. Well, let's talk about the budget. Um, there's currently a lot of concern both on a state and a federal level about a budget deficit. So um, I'd like to talk about, you know, how, how we can, you know, combat this and the importance uh, also of, at this point of maintaining deficit spending. It's not always a bad idea, is it? Well, deficits, we all do it. Uh, for example, and we have long-term deficit and we have short-term deficit. And an example is long-term deficit is your mortgage. You borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a home. Uh, you agree that you can afford to pay it off over a 30-year period or a 15-year period. Um, you have two kinds, a fixed rate or a variable rate, and uh, you know you know that um, you can do that. It doesn't scare you. Uh, That's a really interesting perception. But on the <laughs> other hand, if they said, uh, by the way, you have to pay this off by the end of the year, you would go, I can't do it. Mm. So we, we do borrow to make an investment. The investment is the inv I'm investing in a house, and I'm going to live there, and I'm going to fix it up, and, I'm gonna, and it's going to be worth more after I finish, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, the other kind of debt is sort of like credit cards. At the end of the month, my God, I've charged more on this credit card than I, than I can pay off, mm -hmm. so I'm going to carry it over to next month, and I'm going to have to pay interest on that. And so you have short-term debt and long-term debt, and we live with that as, as persons, as, as families, uh, all the time. The federal and state government the same way. Mm -hmm. Long-term big debt 
you have short-term debt. The short-term debt is how much money are you uh, having to borrow to balance your budget this year. Mm -hmm. The federal government can borrow money. The state government can't. Can't Mm -hmm. borrow money to pay off its deficit. So their budgets have to be balanced. You can balance it in two ways. You can cut spending, which you always do. I mean, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. And you can raise fees and taxes. The California legislature has not been able to raise fees and taxes. So they have had to resort to cuts. And as you know, those cuts have resulted in people getting furloughed and not working on Fridays and, and people losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you say, well, that's a you know, federal or a, a public taxpayer-paying job. But remember, those, those workers also are paying taxes. Sure. They're also uh, buying food, and they're also buying clothing, and they're, they're putting back in the economy. An example of how the federal government, all of the taxes at the Central Coast sends to the federal government. And we're a pretty good area, both, I mean, we're a strong economy and, and we have some wealthy people living here. Uh, all of those taxes spent at the federal government, we get about $3 for every dollar we send to the federal government. Why? Because we have about a billion dollars in military spending at the Naval Postgraduate School Defense Language Institute and, and all the other uh, military installations that are around here, usually educational related. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, the National Forest, we have Bureau of Land Management, we have a national park and uh, na- uh, holding of the national park in uh, Pinnacles. We have the National Marine Sanctuary. We have a lot of federal entities that are around here. And uh, plus the Defense Language Institute, which has all these uh, professors from all these different countries. So, you know, is that an investment? I think so. I think it's a great investment into helping shape our economy around here. And... Uh, and, and it's balanced with the private sector. So we, we do very well as a, uh, as a communities that have reached out and gotten the federal government to invest in this area. Mm-hmm. And, and the same kind of thing we'd like to do to get the private sector invest in this area. And that's, that's where job creation is. So uh, I think it's always trying to take into balance. Now, now the federal government is got a plan to uh, limit the long-term debt, essentially stop the increase. Uh, the projections are that, the, that the, the most debt will be in is in this year, mm-hmm. that next year you'll see the debt go down, so we'll be paying it off. And Schwarzenegger is essentially, one of the things he's trying to do is to get the federal government to give him more money. And we're, we already told the governor, look, you're getting one the state's getting a dollar fifty for every dollar that, that the state spends in Washington. So we're a we're a receiver state. But uh, one way you can get more money is to get the people who are entitled to food assistance, to unemployment insurance, uh, to special education, to kinds of uh, programs that the federal government has given as its safety net, its poverty safety net. Uh, there are a lot of people who are entitled to those programs, but you're not doing enough to assist them in getting that assistance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they don't know about it. They don't know they qualify. Sometimes homeless populations don't realize that or want to fill out papers. And, I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons. Sure. But, you know, if you were in a private sector business and you knew you could get a customer by advertising them or helping them or counseling them, uh, you do that in a quick minute to, to get them. And, and essentially, I think that the, the state of California and the counties and cities and school districts, all of us, uh, our public service responsibility is to say to people, look, you're entitled to these benefits. Uh, we want you to apply for them. Frankly, if there's, again, more money in the community, there's more money going to be spent. And therefore, you're going to have job creation because you're going to have to service the demand. So it's a... It's, it's an interesting cycle, and uh, I think we're, we're in a really interesting position because we're not only a receiver uh, community, almost three to one, but we're uh, in a state that's now a receiving state, that California gets more money uh, from Washington than it sends to Washington. Talk about the aspect of the job bill that, you're, uh, that we heard that there'll be more tax breaks for companies hiring new workers. Well, the president has proposed to try to stimulate uh, small business by giving them a tax credit for uh, $5,000 for every uh, em- 
person they employ. We also have existing programs that allows you to get paid for that, that employee. So you, if you create a job, not only will we help pay for that job in your private job with the idea that you'll retain that employee at the end of the year. That's the, sort of the commitment. I mean, the government will help you pay that salary because we know that you want to retain somebody who has a skill set. So it's in our interest for stability to assist private businesses in hiring people. Uh, but we also want a commitment that you're not just going to use the money and then uh, fire them at the end of the year. So, uh, but that's out there. And in addition to that, you can get a $5,000 uh, tax credit on it. So it seems to me that there's, there's some really good uh, incentives out there to, cr to create jobs uh, that might be very cost-effective for a... Uh, a small business that wants to grow. Um, talk about um, <clears throat> one of the things that's closely tied to any discussion of the economy is, of course, health care, which is one of the rapidly uh, biggest increasing costs there is out there for companies and for individuals. So could you tell us where we are with health care right now um, in terms of, you know, the, the U.S. Congress? There's bills out there that are ready to be reconciled, but what are... What are the chances, and how do you think that's going to happen? Well, well t I think there's two parts to your question. One is, what if we did nothing on health care? Because mm -hmm. that's, that's what you have to look at. Sure. Why do health care? I mean, people say, oh, it's going to cost money. It's changing a lot of stuff. We're not accustomed to change. We don't want to just leave it as is. It's okay. But this is what people aren't realizing, that the facts show, that your premiums that you've been paying have doubled since 2001. Mm -hmm. So in 10 years, mm -hmm. they've doubled. And guess what? They're going to double in the next eight years. So you're paying about um, $13,000 a year as a family for health care. Now, the employer may be paying a good part of that, mm -hmm. but that's what about a, a family insurance policy will cost. That means that same policy in, in ten, eight to ten years is going to cost $26,000. That money you have right now put aside for vacation or for uh, – whatever you want to do, your sort of savings, uh, are all going to be eaten up. You're not going to have a savings account. You're not going to have a vacation. You're not going to have those trips because you're now going to have to pay $26,000 and your salary isn't going to double. No. <clears throat> so you're going to get caught as this sort of uh, a slow burn where the health care costs just eat more and more away into your uh, lifestyle and your income. Educational funds for your children, for that matter. In fact, uh, people who own small business have seen the, the price of health care rise 129% since the year 2000. So what's happening is businesses say, gee, I love my employees. I'd love to give them a, a, a health care plan, but I can't afford it. Or I've been giving it, and I can't afford it anymore. They're going to have to make a lot more of the premium payments. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the insurance companies are raising because the costs are going up. So now you have not only paying for premiums, but when you go and see a doctor or you're in a hospital, your copay has gone up. Mm, significantly. So this is the kind of thing. If we, and guess who's the biggest payer of health care costs? The federal government. Mm. So people say, well, you should run the government like a business. This is one of the things. Yeah, we should. We shouldn't. We should, if we have a leak, we ought to uh, repair it, particularly when that leak is really a big leak. Mm -hmm. And of all the cost to the federal government, this is the biggest leak of all. It's just, it, it's going up at this hundred and, you know, I mean, 129 percent. The same thing could apply to the federal government. You can't afford to maintain a balanced budget uh, if all your money's being sucked out into one cost. So this is it, interesting that you're, it, it's the economics mm -hmm. of it are that we can't, we're, we're going to bankrupt America if we don't fix health care. Because guess what's happening in other countries? The cost of health care is about 9% of GDP. It's 13% in the United States. Mm -hmm. If it goes up to 26%, in those other countries, 9, 10, 11, 12%, I mean, we will not be able to compete with them because the money we'll be spending on health care, they're going to be spending on R&D. Exactly. And they're going to be in spending on, on, on job training and job creation. And infrastructure so and education. So America will, will essentially bankrupt itself, not just the governments, but but private sector ability to get access to capital because we will be sucking it all up into healthcare. So we have to do something about it. And, uh, and because of the cost now, we're seeing people just postpone it. It's too expensive. I don't, I'm not going to have health care, so I'm, I'm not in insurance, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait till I really get sick. I'm going to go into an emergency room. 
It's thought that, and, and then if you don't have money to pay that, that's what they call an uncompensated care. The hospital has to give you the care. Uh, they're responsible for, for keeping people well and healthy. And if you go in the emergency room, you'll get the care. But if they can't collect it from you because you don't have any insurance or you don't have any money, uh, those are what they call uncompensated costs. And it's estimated that out of everybody's insurance plan, about $1,300 a year goes to uh, pay for that uncompensated cost because the hospitals still have to, you know, they have to get the money somewhere. So the, they, they charge it other insurance policies. They add it on to everybody's private insurance, and they come and ask the government for more money and things like that. And if you do have the money, you might end up bankrupt, and that's medical bills are the biggest reason for bankruptcies. And if we don't change it, what we're seeing in the rate is that about mm-hmm. one in almost one in two people are going to end out of every two people are going to be losing insurance or not be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it is. It is. It's a. It's a. This is. This is sort of an uh, economic uh, disaster that we know is coming, and we can prevent it. So that's what the health care bill is all about. People say, well, it's about to get all these unemployed, uninsured people insured. That's true, too, because they're a huge cost, and it's better to have them being treated and treated, stay well. And if you get a cold, treat the cold rather than turning into pneumonia and ending up in the hospital. So there is the ounce of prevention in there. It's also wise economics, and that's why you're having a vast array of businesses and chambers of commerce and everybody else supporting uh, this, this health care reform. And in answer to your question, uh, we've spent a lot of time on it. It's not just this whole last year where a lot of focus went into the details, but Congress for the last uh, 16 years has been trying to figure out how to deal with all of these nuances of runaway health care costs. So we put together the package, uh, passed out of the House one version, Senate passed another version. Neither House likes the others. Um, they all like parts of it, but they don't like, you know, in total. So we're now negotiating, as to, and, and uh, because the vote changes in the Senate with the election in Massachusetts, uh, I think you're going to see is that we're going to have a health care bill. It's going to be comprehensive. Uh, but it's going to be scaled down. One of the things that, that interests me uh, about the, the health care debate is the idea of <clears throat> um, what you mentioned, the, that the federal government <clears throat> is an employer, and we hear a lot about the costs of the um, health insurance for small businesses. It's bankrupting them. It's a this big problem for them. But you're a point that the federal government is a huge employer and is thus extremely suspect and susceptible to these increase in costs is is something that I don't think has been uh, I haven't heard that articulated in quite that manner before. Let me put it important. In, yeah, let me put it in a different perspective. If you add up uh, all the people that are in public employment in the Central Coast, take up all of firemen and policemen, all the teachers, all the all of the public works and maintenance folks. Um, all the employees of state and local government school districts, all the employees of the federal government, they're all on uh, a, a, a public health plan. They buy insurance from a private insurance company, and because they're all in groups, the mm-hmm. cost of that insurance is much less than it would be for you as an individual because essentially there are millions of customers in each one of those groups. Mm-hmm. And so you have the state uh, health care plan, which all, all the state and local governments are all in, the, in one plan, I mean one option. And you can, from that, you can look at about uh, you know, three or four different insurance companies that do business in this area and choose the one that meets your needs. And each one has a different copay and, di- and different premiums. And you, you pick out what's the best one for you and your family. Federal government, same way. It's a different program in the state, but it's same same thing and same system. And um, and then you look at how, where the bills are paid. They're paid from uh, the premiums, and so those insurance companies are paying the bills uh, from the premiums collected from their employees, these public employees. And because everybody over sixty five qualifies for Medicare. We're paying Medicare reimbursements. Plus, we're doing assistance to hospitals. There's federal funds that they can, they can get and uh, rural clinics and so on. If you add up all the public money that comes into health care in the Central Coast, 
it far exceeds all of the private money. So our healthcare system, the infrastructure of it, is supported by taxpayers. And uh, it is already a very public system. What, <laughs> what galls me is, is these people getting up and saying, well, we don't want the federal government to take over our health care. I've heard people say, I don't want the federal government to get involved with my Medicare. <laughs> <laughs> it already is. And it's been that way for a long time. And it's sustaining health care in our areas. And, and what we're trying to do is bring down the cost of that health care by essentially investing in wellness. I'm going to do a program this afternoon with all the schools because I want every school in the United States to have a salad bar. I want kids to eat healthy. The ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, if people stay healthier, and our, I think our federal government needs to really work on people staying healthy, it's going to be less costly uh, when they get older or when they get sick because uh, they'll get sick less often. And so it is about all kind of, this health care reform is about everything. It's not just about the cost of your premium today. But remember that if you don't want health care reform to happen, then you be ready to make sure that you can pay double in the next 10 years for whatever plan you have. It's interesting that you point out, too, that uh, the, the salad bar, because that benefits the Central Coast, not just in terms of improving the health of its citizens, but we're the salad bowl of America in many ways, or certainly of uh, California. So this is a, a feedback loop that, that is to certainly be encouraged here in the Central Coast. One of the privileges I have being in, the, in Congress is going out to the various uh, schools and area in the, in the East Coast around the Washington area. And a couple of weeks ago, I took my staff up to a distribution center in Baltimore because I said, look, we all watch that head of lettuce getting harvested in the Salinas Valley. When it gets in that box and that box goes on a truck, where does that truck go? And it goes to this distribution center. Uh, one of the trucks, I mean, many of the trucks go there. And it was very interesting to learn that if you leave here, these trucks have dual drivers. They leave here on a Friday afternoon. They'll be in Baltimore Monday morning. They can drive all the way across the country in one weekend. Um, they, uh, that, and then what they had is just thousands of, of, you know, boxes of everything of, that comes out of the Salinas Valley. And there it was. Here I was in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm looking at all the lo logos and labels. They're all from Watsonville and from Salinas, all the brand names we see around here. This valley, these valleys here, feed the world. They feed the world. We have the most productive agriculture in the whole world coming out of the Central Coast. And I wouldn't think that anybody in the United States, and much less a lot of people around here, know that the most productive agricultural spot on the globe is right here. And we ought to do, be very proud of it. I think we are. But we're also interested in, in sustaining it because it's also the most expensive state to do business in with all our regulations and, and, and costs of fuel and everything else. And uh, so we, we have to make sure that if we keep these uh, people in agriculture, because if not, this whole valley will be paved over. And the examples are all over California. Southern California just paved everything. San Jose Valley, Santa Clara Valley just paved everything. Uh, we've got... We, <laughs> I, I'm in a lot of the business discussions here. It says, well, we need to create jobs. It's too bad we can't get a, you know, a big company to come and locate here. I said, my God, we've got a big company that locates here. It's called agriculture. It, it sales out of this, this, these valleys here are $3 billion a year. What company could you bring in here that would have sales like that and employ as many people? labor-intensive agriculture. We don't do this by machines. We do this by, by people cutting and packaging and, and, and uh, doing value-added, uh, which is all hand labor-intensive. So we have a great economy. We just have to make sure that our part of our economic package here is that we want to be, have agriculture be sustained. We've got to get agriculture to have more research. We've got to have it being a little smarter if we're going to compete with uh, other countries and other states. Uh, I think we can do it. So I'm really bullish. And as you point out, what we grow here is very healthy to eat. It's what all the diets, I mean, you look at all these fad diets, and I've certainly been on a lot of them. And it's fascinating when you look back at all the food you have on that diet. Essentially, if you want to eat healthy, you eat things that are grown in California. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, 
to this too. You've been working for a couple of years on uh, funds for a new agriculture research in Salinas. Talk about that station and what that will do and how close along we are to that. No businesses can compete on a global scale without investment in research. And you got to essentially, the United States' unique position in the world is that we are a thinking country. We are mm -hmm. a creative, inventing country. It's, it's culture. It's the diversification of our cultures. It's all these things. It's, it's the change attitude in America. It's, you know, whatever's wrong, we can change. We can, some societies, that culture doesn't do that. You do the same thing all the time, repetitive. That's the nature of their culture. We so fix it. We fix it. And we're always interested in, you know, what's on the other side of the mountain. How mm -hmm. do we get to the moon? How do we go farther? How do we do this? We have to stay competitive, and the, and the and competitiveness is about creativity. And it seems to me that uh, we'll not be able to sustain this uh, incredible, unique balance of, of, of the ocean as our future, you know, the frontier of what can happen out there in terms of food and pharmaceuticals and, 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 and keeping the ocean healthy. Uh, at the same time, keeping our lands uh, from being sprawled by keeping agriculture organic, keeping it, you know, doing all the things that are, that are smart and healthy and green. Uh, and make this a nice place to live. And keep it a nice place to live. Mm -hmm. uh, so you need to have that think tank. And uh, we have an agricultural, federal agriculture research station in, in Salinas, at the, next to the airport in Salinas. It's been there since... Uh, <laughs> the 30s and 40s. It's in buildings, Quonset huts, that were built in the 30s and 40s. You cannot have top research equipment, technology, computers, microscopes, uh, in essentially shacks. And uh, so we're going to build, we're going to rebuild. We already own the property. It's federally owned. Federal employees are there. We're just going to upgrade it so that it will really be a center that will attract uh, researchers from our universities around here, It'll attract uh, internships from the schools. It'll be job creative because mm -hmm. the spinoffs will work with Hartnell, we'll work with other schools. We'll really have a center of excellence for agriculture. And so you can, you don't have to go off to Davis or Riverside or back to Beltsville, Maryland to get answers for agricultural needs in this area. We will have our own ability, our own incubator, just like Silicon Valley has, to be able to sustain ourselves over time. And that's why you need to have this research station. I like this idea of research for agriculture. We tend to think that agriculture is, you know, the oldest occupation of humanity. We tend to think we know everything about it, but there's actually a lot that can be done, and this is a great idea, uh, both in terms of just creating the jobs of the people who work there and the, the outflow of jobs into the across the farms. Well, we, I mean, Salinas Valley, through private investment, has just done an amazing um, amount of technology and agriculture. I mean, the fact that lettuce can be put in a bag now and stay on a shelf for almost a month uh, was invention. Didn't come out of Silicon Valley. Didn't come out of anybody. It came out of the Salinas Valley. Hmm. So we are. We've got these companies here that are on the cutting edge of how to keep fresh agriculture sustainable uh, in stores and and. You know, the more we can do that, I, I mean, I'm, the problem we're having with our feeding programs in schools is that it was all developed out of World War II. And, and, and after that, whenever we shipped anything, it was big bulk. It could ship in sacks. I mean, you get flour and wheat and, and cans of peanut butter and so things like that. I mean, schools get them, and they say, well, we can't, you know, we, we don't have a kitchen anymore. So we don't need a, a, uh, all this stuff. We need it. We need the food. So they send it out to... Uh, um, centers that take that and turn it into bread and turn it into other things. And uh, in the process, what we're seeing is that all these processed foods have a lot more sugar in them and salt in them and other things. And they're not necessarily, where's, the, where's all the fresh stuff? So the federal government is still way behind the job because they're still moving around food that can be easily put in barrels and cans and, and frozen and all that. Uh, we can froze freeze strawberries. Uh, can't freeze lettuce, but we can put lettuce in a bag and we can get it to a salad bar and we can get that salad bar in the school lunch program. And kids love it. So the effort here is to get the, the California economy, which is fresh food, that's what we grow, we make, uh, distributed all over this country. It'll be good for business. 
and it'll be certainly good for children, and it'll be wonderful for our country to grow up healthy. Um, the stimulus money has also come here, too, in terms of transportation. Talk about your work on in the transportation, getting us money for roads, highways, and some trains. Well, when we're talking about trying to get money into Main Street, it was how do you get it into jobs? And, you know, most things require all kinds of plans and investment and borrowing of money and setting up the financing system. And, boy, it could take years. Um, I mean, a, a huge highway project takes a decade to just do any of this repairing that we're doing, like the, the corner up in, in uh, Santa Cruz, the, the, highway, no, the highway fish one. hook where yeah, we fixed that. Yeah. It, it took 10 years to get from, you know, launching the approval uh, to uh, having the finishing celebration. So that ain't shovel ready. So what we're trying <laughs> to do is figure out what is shovel, what really is shovel ready? Where can you put some money in? And the uh, fastest way was repaving. Now you have to do that repaving any place. Any, you have to do it to upgrade to sustain the roads and airports. And so a lot of that money came for those purposes. Uh, people kind of laughed at it and said, well, that's not really jobs. Well, ask the guy that's working the paver, you know, whether he likes that job. Because knowing if he didn't have that job, he wouldn't have one. And he'd be on the unemployment roll. So, yeah, a lot of it went into, but it was also done consistent with the ask of the community. So it was bottoms up. I mean, it was, the money came from Washington. But the, the uses for that money came from the local community. Now, as a congressman, you're not just responsible for <clears throat> the local government. You also uh, look at on the international scene, too. Your Congress has oversight of the many wars we've managed to get ourselves involved in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and now apparently Pakistan. Uh, talk about um, how what, you know, your work in the Congress um, to where we are in these one, two, maybe three wars? Well, I think there's, there's a national uh, you know, uh, commitment that not necessarily that I didn't, you know, I didn't approve of, of the invasion of, of Iraq. Uh, I haven't been supportive of that war. I, I frankly think that you work from the bottoms up. You work, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm essentially a, still a Peace Corps volunteer in the sense of how do you meet these uh, failed state nations mm -hmm. and failed economies and failed everything else. Uh, I think uh, using troops is a last resort. Mm -hmm. I think we have failed in our diplomatic terms, and that's why I've been very involved in investing in that and getting diplomacy to be a little bit more creative, and I can explain that to you. But in essence, I think that that's, that's you, know, you, you the, the military can invade, but they can't get out because mm. the local society isn't ready to take over. And uh, and I guess you can see that in spades right now with, with, with Haiti. I mean, it was a different, the invasion was an earthquake and it, and it you know, kind of essentially blew up everything and, and left all these people dead and left all these people homeless and left all these facilities falling down. It's gonna take a massive effort to rebuild that country. The military can't do that. They can be there to help essentially be there fast because they have the equipment and, and, and personnel. Uh, but they're not fighting a war in Haiti. They're down there to do some policing effort, mostly just service effort. But they can't, that's not their mission. And so, uh, you know, I think that's the emphasis that we've got to put on the Iraqs and Afghanistans is how do we, re, we, how do we help these countries help themselves? You're focusing on redevelopment and, redevelopment, and getting their and I think you do that. You have up. to send people in that are that aren't there just because they've got a contract and they're going to make a lot of money being in that country, paid in American dollars to essentially build a school in Iraq. Iraq has a lot of uh, contractors and workers, and you know the Iraqis ought to be building their schools. We can help them. We can help design them. We can help. When they have professional designers, we can work with them. They, I mean, these countries have all these professional cadres. And we ought to put more emphasis on being smart and working with them and upgrading their skills. That's what they want. They really want that uh, because they want to be able to own it like we'd like to own it. Just think if, you know, when we had the earthquake, just think if we couldn't help ourselves. And you had the Russians and the Chinese, Chinese and Japanese in here f with all their troops and all their workers and saying, you know, we'll build your schools. People would say, oh, wait a minute. Uh, this is our, let us do it. This is our land. This is our country. This is our town. Uh, 
These are our jobs. And we can do that. We can send people in. So my emphasis has been, okay, let's start training a lot more people that understand these languages, that can speak speak the native dialect, that know something about the country, know something about the politics, who are the people that are in charge, you know, work with them. I mean, do what we call economic development, do community development. And uh, that's where I think our country's been really slow on the uptake. And fortunately, uh, it's changing because we now have a whole new program set up in the State Department and USAID to train people who are, who are really specialists in stabilization. How do you stop, stop it from getting worse? And reconstruction. Then how do you rebuild? How do you uh, do the same thing we're doing in the stimulus section? And so, you know, it's, just think what our country would have thought about if, if all of this stimulus meant money came to foreign contractors who were going to pave our roads and build our schools and teach in our schools. We would be just absolutely livid. And I think that's where our, our federal government misses the point, is that uh, the way to create peace is to recreate a sustainable um, Local economy. Local economy. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, that's, that's Main Street. That's, you've got to get there on the ground and build from the ground up with locals. Uh, my experience all over the world has suggested seeing examples where that's worked beautifully. And even when we go in, we ought to go in with people that understand the language and are speaking to people. I mean, Peace Corps was called upon in the Haiti. We don't have any Peace Corps volunteers in Haiti, but we are going to have some in the future. But some of the f experts for our federal government were former Peace Corps volunteers in Haiti. We have doctors that speak Creole. Mm. We have Haitians who served, uh, you know, legacies of who, who were, were in that country. We have a lot of talent that came out of the Peace Corps that is now on the ground in Haiti in supervisorial positions because they understand the country. They know everybody and they know the languages. And they know how to get things done. And that's what I think our country ought to be investing more in, so that if we're in Afghanistan, Iraq, or Pakistan, wherever it is, that essentially uh, we're there as a uh, ability to help them upgrade themselves, in a sense. I don't know for a better word to do that, but, you know, to do continuing education as we do here in our professional fields and to give advice as to uh, best practices learned and to help with uh, Haiti's going to have to re re rebuild on earthquake standards. Uh, we know how to do something. We know Californians know how to do that. We ought to be out recruiting anybody who can speak Creole uh, who has some skills and suggesting that they go and be a part of the um, uh, partnership uh, with the rebuilding of Haiti instead of just hiring uh, companies that just want to make a profit. Now, um, another military act thing you're, built, you're working on is H.R. 1283, the Military Readiness Enhancement Act, which would repeal Don't Act, Don't Tell. Um, talk about your work on that and where you see that going. Well, I was a regional course sponsor of the, uh, uh, of the bill, and uh, I never voted for it in the first place. Uh, we have 187 co-sponsors on the bill. Uh, the problem is that, you know, it's, it's really difficult to get bipartisan support on this because uh, the Republican leadership is essentially given the signal that if they want to uh, sort of brand themselves as a the alternative to the Democrats, they won't. Then the Democrats has to be a total fail at everything they try. So don't give them a single vote. And all of the 187 co-sponsors, I think, which is just one Republican. Uh, but I think this is going to happen. Why? Because you heard Admiral Mullins. And he wasn't just speaking and reading. He, he spoke from his heart. He says, you know, I was a career military. Uh, Naval, uh, the Navy Academy went to Naval Postgraduate School, got a master's degree here. Um, and he said, this is just the right thing to do from my heart. And, and I think that's the majority of us in Congress. Uh, first of all, this issue has long ago been resolved by all our allies. We're a, we're a major member of NATO. Almost mm -hmm. all the NATO countries did away with don't ask, don't tell, and have gays, lesbians in the military. And so all the issues that we have to deal with, we go to Britain, we go to uh, NATO countries and find out how they handle it. And, you know, what have been the issues? And, and I think this is something that uh, 
we got to put behind us and and just repeal that. The military, uh, and we have a lot of military members in Congress, and frankly, the bill is being authored by an Iraqi uh, veteran Mm -hmm. who just in his own personal lifestyle in Iraq just, you know, saw how this don't ask, don't tell just really uh, made so many people uncomfortable, so so insecure Mm. uh, because they were always worried about somebody outing them and... And, you know, and then the other thing is you have victims of that. I and mean, where everybody else can talk about their families and loved ones, they can. Well, public talk that my partner died or has cancer or I'm worried. You know, you can say, I'm certainly my, you know, all the, the people can say, well, my children or my spouse, you know, this is the problems. But if in a gay relationship, you couldn't, you, you, under the military uh, uh, laws, you couldn't do that. So you have to just live in a closet. And it's... Uh, and, and in that closet, you're living in fear, and that's wrong, particularly when you're in harm's way. A public policy based on asking people to lie about their uh, beliefs and, and their lifestyle seems to me to be badly conceived. I think we will, the president's come out, and I think was very boldly in his State of the Union address said that, and I think we have the votes in Congress to deliver. It's just, you know, it's an election year. Everything now is being tested because to get the votes, you have to get everybody. Remember, each person in Congress in the House of Representatives is up for a re-election. Mm. And uh, so they're all sort of putting their finger in the air on every single vote and saying, well, how does this play back home? And if they get any negative wind that in my district they don't like this, then they don't want to be a part of the decision. And it's very difficult for every controversial issue, you've got to go out there and put that uh, package of 218-plus members of Congress together. And it's a lot easier when you have bipartisan support, but in this case, where you can only uh, count on your own party to give you votes, and some of them are some from very conservative districts, uh, I think that's the thing that the public... uh, you know, everybody loves their own congressman, mm-hmm. and they can't understand why the rest of them don't vote like their own congressman does. I sure but some of those way. own congressmen are very conservative, mm-hmm. and so people in their district can't can't understand. Well, why does the rest of Congress be like our congress members? So it is. You know, we're a country where we're trying to build national consensus out of 435 congressional districts, uh, each of 650,000 people. So the American public, one man, one vote, really has a lot of power in the United States of America. You know, you mentioned numbers, and I wanted to touch briefly on the, on the census and its importance here in the Central Coast. Of how many people there are in every district matters. We, matters that we count them correctly, doesn't it? Well, I think the census, and I am, you know, I was census, yeah, it's important. You've got to count everybody just because, you know, it's interesting to know how many people live anywhere. But since I've been in government, I've really understood how important it is. It is important for every single uh, viewpoint in this country to get as get the census accurate. And I think that people should, for example, I, Carmel. Carmel's a dying city. Uh, fewer and fewer people are living there. Uh, therefore, you just don't have the community participation. The houses are very expensive. Da, da, da. Most people, 60% of the homes are second homes or third homes. And, I, you know, Carmel's budget keeps being hurt. And it's a labor-intensive small town because it has uh, law enforcement and, and fire department and so on. Uh, and what you're seeing is that the budget's shrinking so they can r- keep those people. At the same time, they have to lay off forestry or whatever. You know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of these other issues that you, small towns like to have. So it's a squeeze. And, and, I, and one of the points that I'm trying to make the city is, look, It'd be in your best interest to go out and campaign to all those people that like to get their mail at the Carmel Post Office to have a post office account there um, or have homes in Carmel to tell the census that they live in Carmel. Why? Mm-hmm. Because for the next 10 years, the subventions that cities and school districts and, and counties and everybody are going to receive are going to be based on the population that's in that jurisdiction. So you want to count every living being. And in some cases, you want living beings who are living in a bunch of different places to, to decide that one of those has got to be called home. And it's in our best interest if they call all these absentee landowners, if they call Monterey County and, and Santa Cruz and San Benito where they have their second homes or ranches or whatever, call that home for a change. Show us some, uh, you're gonna, in most cases, they're going to retire here. And uh, the services that you get are based on, on population. Because... 
In the end, what happens? Why is this so important? Well, there's only three ways in which federal, state, local money gets to a community. I think we pay all, all these taxes in. They all go into these big pools. And then they go back to communities for services, schools, roads, health care, whatever. There's, there's, and, what are they, and how much do they decide to give back to communities? It's based on population. Mm -hmm. And we call that formulas. There's all kinds of thousands and thousands of formulas. But the bottom line of that formula is population. Now, so they may be a population with special needs, uh, a disabled population, maybe a population of elderly, maybe a population of, uh, of, of, of poverty, whatever it is. It's a, it's a population. Formulas are based on that population. Second way you get money is by, by competitive grants. But you're out there competing with everybody else who wants the money. So not everybody's going to get it, only the ones who win the competition. Then the third way, which is the most kind of controversial way is somebody in office like myself says, hey, wait a minute, this project in Monterey is really worth doing. Let's earmark it. And uh, earmarks are on the wane and someday may be totally wiped out. So that means that in the next 10 years, your best investment of getting a, uh, a return uh, on your community is to make sure that that community can count every living person uh, that, that's there. And that's why the census is so important. Now I wanted to ask you real quick to talk about, you've alluded to this a few times. Let's wrap up with a little bit about the politics of all this. You're, a, you're in the majority party, but it's a tenuous majority, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, a tenuous majority because uh, like anything that uh, <laughs> human nature is, is uh, you can't categorize people. Uh, nobody is, is just all of one thing. And uh, that's the wonderful, uh, I think, American, American society and communities and American politics is a... Uh, quilt of all kinds of ideas and, and ethnicities and so on, and the, and the broader the better, because government ought to respect, re represent, reflect uh, the population, so it has some credibility. Uh, that's one thing, and I think we do in a democracy, we do a pretty good job of getting that. Uh, the, but the way you get there is that you advertise, mm -hmm. uh, just like Coca-Cola or automobile companies or anything. And that's kind of branding. And so, you know, you sort of brand yourself as a Democrat or Republican, and then you can be all kinds of categories of conservative or progressive or whatever. Uh, and I think some members, certainly the ones that have been there longer, realize that, hey, it's really for the good of the order. I can take some tough votes because this is really the, re the responsible thing. I think in many cases it's the common sense thing. But you have other people that get there and say, oh, my God, I just got elected, and I'm so nervous because, you know, they criticize me, and, the, and I got elected. So I got, I got to just, I, 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 you know, they, I think they, unfortunately, they don't, they don't have a sense of why they came to Congress. Mm. It was a way, and I don't know, this could be applied to state legislatures, city councils, board of sewers, school boards. I mean, there are people who go because they want to make the agenda. They, don't, they know what the problems are. Mm -hmm. They want to go there and fix those things that are broken. There are other people that are running because they want to run for the job. Mm -hmm. They want the title. And so those that are running for the title want to keep that title, and sometimes uh, then they're so scared they don't want to vote for anything that's controversial. And remember, it's easy to criticize. It's always easy to be on the, on the no side. Mm. No's don't ever pass anything. You need 218 votes in the, Calif in the U.S. House of Representatives. You need 51, well, 60 because of the rules in the Senate. Uh, in the California legislature, you need... 41 in the state Senate, uh, I mean 21 in the state Senate and 41 in the, in the assembly. Uh, sometimes there's a two-thirds vote requirement, but that is it. So, and everybody's up for election. I mean, every contract's up for election every two years. So it's job renewal time and people are very worried about how that electorate is reacting. And, react, and, and, and societies in America, at least, react to advertising. And just as we're seeing as we're speaking today, 
Toyota, which has been this brand name in auto sales, it's just far sold out, sold everybody, makes good products, all of a sudden has brake and, uh, and uh, pedal problems and getting a lot of negative advertising, mm-hmm. perhaps deserved. But you know who loves that? It's General Motors, <laughs> of and course. Ford. They're going nuts. All of a sudden, they got now we got you know if we can if we can poison that logo, they'll come and shop with us. And I think unfortunately, politics is out in that same ring. When to get elected, you got to go out there and advertise. And so what we've done in this commercialism is that my brand is better than your brand, and it's not just better in the, as we used to advertise. It's now we got to tell you why the other brand is bad. Mm-hmm. And, and therein is what's happening to America, is we're losing, we're losing our sense of, 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 of how do we collectively come together for the good of the country and the, the good of the people and, and try to lead this country, not only as we need to do to sustain ourselves as a nation, but to be in a very competitive global world. And uh, I, I, unfortunately, I think this branding, political branding of... And it's, as I said, uh, change is always difficult. People are uncertain about it. So when you're going to fix something that's broken, some people understand. I know, I know it's broken, but I, I understand it. I want to keep it that way because I don't necessarily trust how you're going to fix it. And therein is the dilemma that our country's in right now. And uh, the interesting thing is that it all depends on the people. It's the who, who votes because they're the ones that create the government. So with elections coming up and everybody wondering where the mind of the electorate is and what they're, they're playing to those fears, and um, I, I just think it's a very interesting time. Frankly, uh, I, I love my job. I, I love service. Uh, as my wife said, you're still a Peace Corps volunteer. You've just changed your barrio. And uh, I look at my job in Congress as being that, as trying to meet the unmet needs of a community, to uh, create a vision for ourselves that's, uh, that can really be sustainable and exciting and, and create a, a better world, not a better community, a better world for all of us. So uh, it's a little bit discouraging right now to see that we're mild in these political wars, that frankly the outcome of the political war is not necessarily in the best interest uh, of, of everyone. So we'll get through it because we're a strong country and uh, we do recover. And in fact, the biggest debate we're having right now is about the next Recovery Act. And I'm glad that you're working on it. I've been speaking with Sam Farr. He's a congressman for the 17th District of California in the United States House of Representatives. Thank you for speaking to me with me. Thank you. It's really Farr. always a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.